what a sweet, sweet reminder of, of who God is. Uh, the thought, the reminder, we can go to the altar and, and meet Christ so we can go to the cross. And the reminder that, that he's forgiven all sins for those that trust him. And, and generally, he's given us a brand new life in him. What a great reminder of that today. Why don't you have a seat and, and I'll um, move us on through our service. Uh, summertime has come. I'm so glad you guys are here. Have you felt summer? Man, I, I left. Uh, I walked out the back door and walked to the driveway, and I, I didn't walk. I swam through the humidity to get to the, the car in the driveway. And uh, I, there's a guy that I was talking with not long back, and, and he and his family were pondering maybe moving here from, from somewhere out west where it, it's ugly with snow peak mountains and mountain lakes and rivers that crash and they're clean, all that kind of stuff. And, and so he's talking about, golly, uh, like, why would God ever move someone from there to here? And I had to think a really hard, but I came up with it. I said, in this entire planet, we have the best humidity in the entire planet right here. I mean, you'll never find better humidity than we have right here, which didn't impress him. And, uh, I, you know, chances are they'll be in the mountains till they die. But, but summer is here, isn't it? And summer doesn't usually slow down for people that follow Jesus, which is a good thing. And especially so for our students these days. In fact, this Thursday, we'll have 107 students and 20 leaders that will leave for New Mexico for Exfuge Mission Camp. And uh, in fact, a bunch of them are here at this service. I want to ask all of the 107 and the 20 to stand. So on behalf of the church, I could pray for them in their trip. Thank you. They, they will be uh, doing much physical labor on farms to, uh, that provide food to Hungary. They'll be doing much labor in backyards, uh, talking openly about Jesus in backyard Bible studies. So together, let's pray for all of these that are around the room. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for these that have, uh, they're taking a week of their life, many cases, a week of summer or a week of vacation. We pray that that even now you're preparing their hearts and their minds and their lives for what you want to do in and through them. We pray that, that you'll give them safe travel going and coming. We pray that throughout the week that you'll do a deep work in every single one of their hearts and every one, single one of their souls. Some of them, Father, I'm sure of this many, some of them don't yet actually know you through your son Jesus. And our prayer is that this might be the week that they might actually truly encounter Jesus and yield their life to him and find a brand new life. And others, there'll be spiritual growth things you want to do, Father. Please work in them. Please help them know your presence throughout. Uh, Please pour your power and your love and your grace through each one of them. May they sense it. May they know it. For those that they minister to, Father, and there will be many, many direct, many indirect May each one ministered to also sense your mighty, loving, grace-filled presence. And may each one be touched and and, uh, may each one respond to you, Father. I know these are big prayers, Father. It's only seven days, but there there are 127 that are giving you the fullness of these seven days. And we know you're a mighty God. So I pray all this with great hopes and great expectations. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Thank you guys for what you're about to do Thursday through Wednesday. Thank you.
a number of them were here first service, and, um, and so they're going to step out, but they were gracious to let me pray for them twice and let you pray for them as well, two times as well. There are, there are a number of spiritual giants in Scripture that, that a whole lot of us, maybe all of us in this room might recognize. Moses might be one of them. He was this man long ago that there came a day that he stood before a sea, and God directed him to raise his staff, and when he raised his staff, then God parted the sea. And there were about two and a half million slaves that walked across what had been sea. They walked across dry land to, to freedom in their life. You would know of this man, Moses. Maybe most of you would know of this man, King David, who as a young man, some would say even as a boy, on a given day, he took a sling and five stones, and he was the only one from his nation courageous enough to go out and face this giant named Goliath. And, and he would slay Goliath in this faith and this courage he would, he would expend that day. Maybe less of us might know of, of Esther, who was this queen, but Esther actually has a book of the Bible named after her, which David never got. But Esther was this queen who, in a very heroic act, saved the nation of Israel, this spiritual giant named Esther. All of us would know something about this very, very young woman, Mary, who was unwed, uh, still a virgin, who uh, became pregnant uh, with a conception literally of the Spirit of God. And she would carry this child through pregnancy and give birth to this child and raise this child. And and we know of her. She's one of the spiritual giants. Maybe many of us would know of this man named Peter who on a given day stood before a very hostile crowd. And with great bravery, he said, Jesus is risen from the dead and he is the Lord of all lords. We would know of those spiritual giants. What is surprising is, and, and we, get, we get from them, this is not the surprise, we, we get from them inspiration of what could be. We see this great faith, in many cases great courage and great sacrifice, and we're inspired toward the same thing. But what is surprising is, in many cases, God has gone out of his way, it seems, to point out their failings and their failures and their sins. It's especially surprising when you look at those that were Israel's kings and we're looking at Scripture and the Scriptures we look at in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Those were the official documents of the kings in their lifetime. And you read about their lives, the official history in their lifetime, and all, not all of them, but, but there are these horrific sins that are laid out that these kings committed. And if you look at all of the comparable literature of their times, the surrounding nations, the, the contemporary history being written about their kings, always talked about kings who were absolutely perfect without sin. In fact, in some cases, the other kings were called even gods. And yet God went out of his way to, to put into this biblical record the, the failings of many of these spiritual giants. And I think one of the reasons is this. I think God wants us to always be reminded that even the highest of the spiritual giants even they had failings and flaws, and only God is perfect. Only God is fully righteous. Only God is completely good. But I think also God wants us to learn from their failings. He wants us to see, to see the damage done by their failings, but in many cases see how he led them beyond their failings and, and led them beyond those to a life without the continuation of those failings. And so I think that's one of the reasons he's put those there. I've reflected a lot as I've prepared for this. We don't have to look at Scripture to see spiritual giants. I've reflected there, there are some spiritual giants in this church. Within the past year, there was a couple on stage 
And they were sharing about one of them had this long-standing struggle with pornography. And they were so candid before the entire church about the deep damage done. But they began to talk about how in their following of Jesus, how he entered into that and began to mend and heal and repair. And, and even for the spouse, for the wife who had, had suffered much, uh, we got lessons of forgiveness from her and from the husband who had struggled with pornography. We saw the power of God, that God was bigger than the pornography. And we heard his story of being able to abandon that and leave that in the trash pile. Spiritual giants right here in our midst. In the past year, we had a woman on stage who talked about some, some pregnancies that ended in abortion. And she talked about uh, now reflecting back the, the deep failing, the deep sin of that. But then she talked on beyond that, and she talked about coming to know Christ and coming to know his deep forgiveness and his cleansing and this new life. And she talked about another pregnancy that didn't end in abortion because of Jesus, but now is this beautiful life that's running around the halls of this church. And, and she, is, she is one of our spiritual giants. And she is one of my biggest heroes in this place. In this past year, in fact, in the past few months, there's been, there was a lady on stage that shared the most personal sharings about deep, deep struggles for decades with eating disorder. And, but she didn't stop there. She shared about God meeting her in that and God giving her grace and forgiveness and all that, but not even stopping there that God's given her this way to, to finally leave that in the dustbin. And she's one of our spiritual giants and she's one of our heroes. And, and those among us that, that come to a point of being able to tell our story and say, well, this, this was my failing. This was one of my failings, but God is bigger than my failings. God has forgiven me my failings, but even more than that, he is, he is greater than my failings, and he can lead me to, at some point, leave that failing, that sin, in the dustbin as well. They are our spiritual giants. So this is a mini-series. We're going to look at, at three biblical spiritual giants. We'll look at Joseph today. Next Sunday is Father's Day. I am so excited to take King David, who is one of the most respected, renowned, highly regarded figures of all of human history, and we're going to look at his failings as a father. And I can't wait to teach about it because those of us fathers will find great encouragement and great hope and great insight. So if you're a dad or you know a dad or you have a dad or whatever, I hope this place is filled with dads and, and families next Sunday to hear about this, this one who failed. So we as dads can learn from that and grow on. And then finally, at the end of the month, we'll talk about this guy, Peter. And Peter has a bunch of very well-known failings. We're going to talk about one that you wouldn't think Peter would have. But he did, and many of us can learn from as well. So today is Joseph. You find his life in Genesis chapters 37 and 39 through 50, which means Joseph gets um, very, very few people get more space in Scripture than Joseph. If you look at it, the number of chapters dedicated to his life and his story, very, very select few get more space in scripture, which means his story must be very important to us. And uh, to give you some context, maybe if you've been around um, Christianity at all, maybe you've heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was this man, distant, distant past. God made this covenant with Abraham. 
and said, I'll make this covenant of relationship with you, Abraham, and through your descendants, eventually I will touch the entire world through them. And then Abraham has this son, Isaac, and God passes on the covenant to Isaac, and Isaac has a son, Jacob, and God passes the covenant on to Jacob. So it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob has these 12 sons, and Joseph is the 11th of the 12 sons. And so that's where Joseph fits in. He's the 11th of 12 sons of, um, of Jacob. And Joseph had two massive attributes in his life. One was extraordinary leadership. If you boil it down in one sentence around leadership, he was a slave that became the ruler of all of Egypt, which was the most powerful nation on earth at that time. He was a slave that became the ruler of all of it. Pharaoh still had the crown on his head or whatever he wore on his head, but he gave all power, all authority to Joseph the slave who became king in essence. Great, great leadership gifts. And his second quality is extraordinary dependence upon God. Read through his life and you find there's this extraordinary dependence upon God. But it wasn't always that way. His story begins in Genesis chapter 37. In verses 5 through 8, Joseph is now 17 years old. So he's, he's a man, especially in their times, he was a man. And he has this dream, and he's thrilled with the dream. This is a cool dream, so he goes right to his brothers and tells the 11 brothers about the dream. And the dream was that they were all out in the fields. They were gathering up grain, and, and his um, uh, stand of, of grain, his, whatever you call those things, some farmer tell me what you call bundle. This is the second service. I'm on toast right now. <laughs> his bundle of grain, he says, my bundle of grain stood up. And your 11 bundles circled around me and all bowed down to my bundle. Isn't that cool? They didn't think it was so cool. He said, aren't I great? And he, didn't, he wasn't that perceptive about their response, or maybe he didn't care about their response. But he has another dream not long after. And you read about this in chapter 37, verses 9 through 11. In this dream, he goes and tells them, he says, hey, this is even better than the first dream. He says, the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowed down to me. And he doesn't have to tell him what that means. It means not just the 11 brothers will bow to him. Even mom and dad are going to bow down to him. And, and he has, there's no sense of this, of this, hey, I know I'm, I'm the next to the youngest. How could this be? I'm not deserving this. Hey, let me tell you this cool, cool dream. I love this, guys. You're going to bow to me. There's, there's, no, there's no sense of, of humility. There's this sense you read in it, and you'll see such a contrast in his life later. There's this sense of, I have the world by the tail. I have life by the tail. Look how great I am. Let me give you a definition of pride because at that season of his life, he was filled with pride. Pride is dependence upon self. Pride is very simply, very importantly, if you're taking notes, write this one down. Pride is dependence upon self. I got it. I can handle it. I don't need any help. Uh, Above all, I don't really need to bother the God of the universe because I'm very capable of handling everything that's facing me. If I have a problem on those days or those years, I'll turn to him then. I've got it. That's pride. Humility is total dependence upon God. Again, very important. Do not miss this. Write this down. Lock it in your memory. Humility is total dependence upon God. Total dependence upon God. And this is how, to give you some sense of how God would feel about Joseph in that season, and then how he would feel later about Joseph, this is how God feels in Proverbs 8, 13, God says, I hate pride and arrogance. No bones made. I hate pride and arrogance. When I even speak that even now, I, it makes me do some self-examination. 
God speaks in the strongest of terms. He says, I, when, I, when I find pride, in other words, when I find someone who, who thinks they, they can handle it on their own, I hate that. And we're going to see it's because God's, God knows we're not made for that. We will, never, we will never ultimately function well with that. He says, I hate pride and arrogance. James 4, 6-7, it says, God opposes the proud but favors the humble, so humble yourselves before God. God opposes the proud. Or I could rewrite this. God opposes those who rely upon themselves, but he favors those who depend upon him. So depend upon him. Humble yourselves before God. So here's what happens with, with Joseph. He has this um, sense that he's very capable of of handling this life, not just his life, but he actually feels like, hey, so I've got 11 brothers that bow to me. I've got a mother and a father that bow to me. I'm in charge of them. No problem. I can handle it. I can boss them around. I'm very capable of that. And so what happens next is that the 10 older brothers decide that they'll just kill him so there won't be a third dream. They've had, they've had to fill the dreams, into the dreams. They're going to kill him. And then probably God's intervention, although it doesn't say this, but last minute before they kill him, instead they just sell him into slavery. And so he's sold into slavery. He's taken off to this land of Egypt. And, and there he begins to be a slave in the household of this powerful man named Potiphar. So he's a slave in the household of Potiphar. And in Genesis 39.2, God clues us in to who's really at work. There's no indication that Joseph understands this now, but God is telling us who's really at work. Genesis 39.2 says, The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded. God's cluing us in. There's this stunning success that Joseph has in uh, Potiphar's household. So much so that Potiphar says, you just run the house. You're so gifted you run the house. God's cluing us in and saying, God was the one that gave him that ability and that success. God was behind that. And so things go well for a while, and probably Joseph is still living with this sense of, I got it, I can handle it, this pride. And so he's falsely accused in Potiphar's household, and he's put in prison. So he's gone from being a slave in a rich house, now he's a slave in prison. And most likely God was, God was just saying, you're not there yet. You don't realize how much you need to depend on me, so I'm going to help you discover that. So he's in prison, and God clues us in again in Genesis 39, 21. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. So God's saying there's going to be this stunning success that happens in prison. In fact, the warden is going to turn the prison over to Joseph. And God's saying it's not because Joseph is so good or so gifted. It's God's saying it's because I'm doing it. I, I am the power at work. And so uh, Joseph is over the prison, and at one point, the Pharaoh's favorite baker and favorite cupbearer are sent to prison. They're in disfavor with Pharaoh. They're sent to prison. Some time passes, and both of them have their own dreams on a given night. They don't know what the dreams mean. They're both disturbed by that. And, and Joseph sees them, and he asks about what they're wrestling with, and they say, we had these dreams, we don't understand them, we're deeply disturbed. Genesis 40, verse 8, for the first time, Joseph begins to get where life needs to reside. He says, interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Instead of saying, hey, I got this, anything, any problem, tell me, I can fix it. He says, that's God's business, so go ahead and tell me your dreams. 
He's in essence saying, if God is going to be in this, then maybe we'll have an interpretation. If not, we don't have a chance. And so they tell him the dreams. He interprets both of them. Within 72 hours, what Joseph has interpreted comes precisely true. Two more years pass. Can you just see God leaving him in prison two more years, just, just honing this deep understanding of reality that he can only thrive with deep dependence upon God? Two more years pass. Then Pharaoh, who runs all of Egypt, Pharaoh has this dream. He's disturbed. No one can interpret it. Finally, this cupbearer, who's now been released from prison, serving Pharaoh, Pharaoh finally remembers now, hey, there was a guy back in prison. He interpreted two dreams. They both came true. Maybe he can interpret this one. They, they drag Joseph from prison to Pharaoh's court. I can only imagine what he was thinking. Oh my goodness, this is not good. They drag him to Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh says, I understand you can interpret dreams. In uh, verse 41, 16, this is his response. It is beyond my power to do this, Joseph says. I I don't got it. I I don't have enough power. I don't have enough strength, enough knowledge. I'm not capable. It's beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. And so Pharaoh tells him his dream. Joseph interprets it. It resonates so deeply with Pharaoh. He puts Joseph in charge of the entire nation, which ends up saving the nation and other nations as well. He puts him in charge. Joseph Joseph now has this deep sense, life is only going to work. I mean, this deep depends upon God. In fact, in chapter 41, verses 51, 52, some time passes. God blesses Joseph with a wife there in the foreign land of Egypt, and he has a couple of sons. And it says Joseph um, named his older son Manasseh, which, by the way, is Hebrew for cause to forget. For he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. He named his, his first son. I mean, God is, he is the one running the show, not me. I'm naming my son to remind me God is the one that's allowed me to forget. And then, then it goes on and says, Joseph named his second son Ephraim, which by the way in Hebrew sounds like the word fruitful, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. He's attributing everything good to God, which is the accurate interpretation of reality of what's happened. So some time passes in um, the dream that Pharaoh had was there would be seven years of great prosperity followed by seven years of famine. And because of that dream interpretation, Egypt is prepared. They store up food and resources during the prosperity. They have way more excess than they need. Other nations come to them during the years of famine, and they save those nations, but also in some sense enslave those nations in the process. And in that process, Joseph's uh, 10 older brothers show up one day because they're looking for grain. And there's this long interaction that occurs. You'll have to read the details of it. But, but in essence, there's this interaction that finally unfolds. They finally realize, hey, this is, this is our brother we sold into slavery. We are toast. Like, this is the end. It's just a matter of how we die. But it's going to happen real soon now. And so they realize that. And in chapter 45, verse 5, this is what Joseph says in their fear. He says, don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. He's saying, the one I've learned to depend on in deep humility, he's the one that, he's the one that sent me here. He's the one that sent me here. More time passes, and once again, they get fearful. Oh, now he'll change his mind. Now he'll kill us. Chapter 50, verse 20, he says, you intended to harm me. Yes, that's true. But God intended it all for good 
He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Do you see the do you see what happened in his life from those earlier years when he's he's telling stories about, hey, everyone's gonna bow to me, aren't I great? To a point where they actually bowed to him, and every single time he's pointing up, he's saying, This is the one I depend upon, and apart from him, I am nothing, we are nothing, we have nothing apart from him. He abandoned this pride of dependence upon self. And he embraced this humility of complete, total dependence upon God. Some of you need to hear what I'm about to say. The more gifted you are, the more successful you are, the more you'll be prone to pride. The more gifted you are, the more successful you are, the more you'll be prone to pride. It's true of all of us. The more things have gone well, the more things go well. It is so easy to think, it's because of me. I've got this. I can handle this. I can do this. And, and if it begins to unravel, then I'll bother God with it. But until then, in fact, we often even have this false sense we're doing God a favor, we're not bothering God. And, and that is the very definition of pride, of saying, I got this, I can handle this. Things are going well and because I got it and I got tomorrow as well. Whatever I face, I can handle this. I'm doing well. It, it, often, it often shows up in, in our work. I shudder at the days from the last 30 years that I've had some great prayer time in the morning and then I get to the end of a work day and it dawns on me after my morning prayer I, I never once paused in the midst and said God guide me help me show me I, I never once paused from that early morning hour to the evening hour of saying as the day unfolds in the midst of hour two or three or five or six I don't have enough wisdom to navigate this current hour. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have enough love. I don't have enough grace. I don't have enough power. I don't have enough righteousness. So, so would you guide me? Would you allow me to, to depend deeply upon you in this moment, in this conversation, in this engagement, in this problem, in this challenge, in this lunch break? Would you, would you guide me? Can I depend upon you to navigate? You provide the knowledge and the wisdom and the love and the grace and the power and righteousness. Can you do that in me? We have relationships with family or friends or coworkers or classmates or, or even strangers. So often we think we got this. I could think I've, Marie and I celebrated 39th anniversary yesterday. I could think last 39 years, largely gone pretty good. There have been some ups and downs, but I think I can handle another day. I, I know how to be a husband to her. So God, I'll check back with you later. Uh, if Marie were here, she would tell you that doesn't work too good. I'm not a very good husband on those days. Uh, with our relationships, it's so common for us to, to say, I can handle this. I've been doing this marriage relationship, this parent-child relationship, this work relationship, this neighbor relationship, pretty good. I can handle it today. Or it shows up in our money of thinking, God, I'm doing pretty good. I'm making money. I'm spending money. I'm saving money. I'm giving. I can handle that. If it unravels and I don't have enough, I'll, I'll believe me, I'll come. I'll knock at the door. I'll ask you for help on that. I've learned this. When I am in that mode of thinking, I've got it, I can handle it, it is a clear sign of immaturity. It's a clear sign of immaturity because God has made us to live in vibrant, intimate relationship with him. Reality is, a mature understanding of reality is, we only thrive 
in vibrant, intimate relationship with God. Apart from him, apart from him, we don't have enough of what we need apart from him. Acts 17, 28 is, is one of my favorite verses. Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we live and move and exist. In him we live, we move, we exist. It, it's, it's summarizing this sense of only in this intimate bond with him do we navigate this life at all well. It's the way he made us for that. And anything less than that, there's this insufficiency. It's as though there's not enough oxygen in the room. We cannot function. We're not on all eight cylinders he made us with when we're trying to do it on our own. We're made for this, this deep, intimate, vibrant relationship with him. We spent seven weeks just recently about the Holy Spirit. And the very core of that was that for everyone that follows Jesus, the very Spirit of God lives within us. We talked about the intimacy and the proximity and his desire to guide us and empower us and direct us and change us, all of that. All of that, in essence, was all about not thinking, hey, I got it today. I got the next four hours. I got the next hour. I got it. All of it was about his plan is moment by moment I thrive with him. And that doesn't mean every 60 seconds I'm stopping and saying, okay, God, but it also, on the other end of the spectrum, doesn't mean I check in in the morning, check in at night. I mean, there's something between there, this deep, deep dependence upon God. This is so important that Jesus even modeled this for us. And keep in mind, he is the very son of God. He is the co-creator of everything in existence. He has all power, all knowledge, all love, all grace, all righteousness, and yet he modeled this for us. I'll give you three verses. These, these, all three of these are in John. There are many others we could choose. John 5, 19. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. He's saying, watch me. This, I only do what I see the father doing. De- complete dependence upon the father. Humility Humility, deep dependence upon the Father. John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. He says, I don't even just judge independently, although I have all wisdom and knowledge and grace and all that, all righteousness. I just, I, I let the Father tell me even how to judge. I depend upon the Father. John 8, 28, I don't do anything on my own. I say only what my Father taught me. Jesus himself is saying, I only say the things Jesus, the Father tells me to say. He's, he's modeling for us this, this deep dependence upon God in which we find life. In him, we live and move and have our very existence. In him, we live and move and have our very existence. Two very important things because we could go down a rabbit trail on these two. Humility isn't a low view of self. Humility is an accurate view of self. Let me say that again. Humility is not a low view of self. Humility is an accurate view of self. We simply are not made to navigate this life well depending upon ourselves. We're made to depend deeply upon God deeply upon him, that kind of relationship that is flowing with him. We're made for that. Okay, that's a, it's the accurate view of self. Second thing is this, is, is humility doesn't excuse us from giving our very best. Well, we're dependent upon God for knowledge and power and all these other things. 
it hardly excuses us from giving our very best. Paul writes in Colossians 3.23, and this is the New Contemporary Version translation. It says, in all the work you're doing, work the best you can. Work as if you're doing it for the Lord, not for people. Okay, in all the work you're doing, work the best you can. Pour out everything you have. Back, long time back, I was teaching out of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. And there's a place where God's talking to his people. And, and he's saying to them, he said, here's, here's what we do. This is part of your worship back in Old Testament days. So part of your worship is to bring animals to, to sacrifice and worship before me. And many times it was to bring a lamb to sacrifice before me. And God is saying to them, do you realize what you're doing? You're going to your flocks and you're finding, you're finding the most decrepit lamb in the, in the flock. You're finding the one that's wounded and sick and scarred in your death. And you're saying, I'll take that one. I'll give that one to the Lord. Won't he be pleased? You're bringing those. And, and he said, no, no, I have always said, I want you to bring your best lamb. Hey, go to your flock and you find the best lamb because I'm worth it. You bring that lamb, you sacrifice that lamb to me, that's worship. It shows you know who I am. And one of the learnings for us, as God says to us, is, is while we're in this relationship of deep dependence, God is saying, I, trust me, as you depend, I will guide, I will empower, I will work but then I want you to bring your best lamb. You give everything you have. That, that's, how it's, that's how you're made. That's how you're made to honor me. You're depending upon me. You're trusting in me. You know, you can only do it with this, this deep bond that is alive and vibrant. But as you live in that, then you bring your best lamb. You, you bring all you have. You pour it out. This is what I want to, to suggest. I want to give you four Four simple scenarios. I want you to pick one or more and challenge you to, to engage in, in humility in one or more of these. The first would be this. Many of you will be having lunch with someone in a short while. Lunch with maybe family members or friends or some acquaintances. And in that lunch, I would encourage you multiple occasions as the lunch unfolds, ask God to help you love the people at the table with you. Loving them is the only command we're really given. And so have this pipeline to God throughout the lunch. And just a, f- a few times in the lunch, be so con- ask God, God, how, how can I love these people at the table be now in this, in this time? How can I love them? Help me love them in this setting. There's a second one that may fit. Okay, as you go about the rest of this day, you will probably encounter some people that you don't know at all. In fact, as, even as you leave this room, you'll encounter some you don't know. Ask God to help you see, see those persons as he sees them. Ask God to help you see those persons as he sees them. Maybe it's the waiter or the waitress or the cashier. Or, or maybe it's, it's a neighbor you are even driving past. Just whisper a prayer and say, God, show me, show me what you see in them. Show me how you see them, not what I see. It can actually revolutionize even how you pay a bill or, or how you, you go down your street. It can change everything. Depend upon him to show you what they look like. Here's a third one. Ask God to help you see yourself as he sees you. Ask God to help you see yourself as he sees you. I was 
we were in a mentoring relationship, another man and I were, and this was a, a life-altering takeaway for him. He began to ask God, to, for God to show him what God sees in him, and he began to recognize how frequently and unknowingly he had looked to his wife to be the one who would affirm him and approve him and show he was worthy of love and, and all those things. And of course, there, as always happens, there were many times through the years that, that she was depleted and she was drained and she had nothing to give. And in those settings, he would say, I, I was depleted, she was depleted, I, I want her to, I need her to make me feel affirmed and loved. And so I would get mad and things never went well. But he said, when I began to ask God, uh, you, you show me what you see in me. Tell me how loved I am, forgiven, um, worthy of your son's death on a cross, as stunning as that is, how you see me. Show me that. So when, I, when I'm present with my wife, I'm full. I don't need her to fill me up. And his words now for quite some time have been, it's changed everything. Simply because I began to ask God, show, show me what you see in me. Tell me what you see when you see me. I'll give you one more. And this is in the workplace, so it may not happen until tomorrow for a lot in this room. But in the workplace, ask God to help you do, do your job in the task that you are in the midst of. As the workday unfolds, just ask God in the midst of the task, not when the day begins only, in the midst of the task, ask him to help you in that task. Maybe it's in, in a meeting setting and there's wisdom needed or there's interpersonal skills needed. Maybe it's a problem-solving case. Maybe it's uh, some kind of repair job that you'd be on. But just ask the God of the universe to, to meet you in that and help you do that in his power and his wisdom. Joseph had, he had this, these early adult years that may have lasted for, until he was 30, perhaps, what we read. And, and his perspective was, I got it. I got it. And it appears that God had to, to put him into slavery and then into prison to break him of that, to bring him to this point of humility, of depending upon God. May God not have to do that to any of us. Just out of Joseph's example, may we learn and may, may this day, may we determine, God, I don't want any more of this pride business because I, I don't have it. <laughs> I don't have it. But you do. And so, God, I want to live this life, this fresh life of total dependence upon you. Father in heaven, what, what a perfect design, Father, you have for life. Uh, you do. You've given us abilities and gifts and beyond what we could ever deserve, and yet they're never enough for the life you've given us. And that's because you designed it where we have to turn to you and depend upon you, and together with you, together with you, then we with you are enough. May we get that. May we learn to live that, lean into that, practice that. May we grow in that. Father, we're about to sing this song in Christ alone. May the words as we sing resonate deep in our hearts and souls. May the truth it resonate within our souls, Father. And then bring us out of that song into what's left of this service, Father. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.